Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing and today's co-host. Welcome. Hello, world. Hi. How are you doing? How are you doing this Monday morning? <clears throat> I'm doing good. I'm surprisingly awake compared to last week. <clears throat> good, good. Yeah, it's always it's always a challenge at the 8 in the morning uh, time slot, but somehow we're all uh, booking through it and doing it. So uh, today our guest is Charlie Bondas, the author of uh, All the Heat We Can Carry, uh, We Could Carry in 2013. Winner of the Tom Gunn Award for Gay Poetry. He received his MFA in Creative Writing from Goddard School and his PhD in Literature from UMass Amherst. His latest book, Divining Bones, by Sundress Publications, 2018, uses the occult to tell the story of a male-assigned individual who chooses to explore the fluid boundaries of gender. A practicing pagan himself, Charlie invokes the Russian witch goddess Baba Yaga uh, to guide the speaker on his journey. Magic spells and paranormal experiences abound among beautifully written lines by a poet. We'll all, we, we, we will all want to share and know. Uh, that's from a review uh, re- referring to the many magical beings the speaker encounters on his journey, including a man born with demon wings, witches who fly with the aid of espresso, and a nun who experiences divine visions of reptiles. Wow. That's quite a, quite a journey there. And uh, Charlie, uh, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so first of all, you uh, you selected the song uh, that we listened to. Last more says Baba. I guess it's similar. You know, going insp- inspired you with your writing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how uh, how the song or how the uh, Baba Yaga legend inspired you? Well, it's a funny story about um, the song Baba um, coming through, uh, connecting to this book. Um, my best friend. Um, we were big Alanis Morissette fans uh, in high school uh, in the 90s. And um, he sent me a text message a few years back with a picture of a beer can that said Baba on it. Uh-huh. It's some, you know, artisanal beer called Baba Beer, and it has a picture of a sheep. Um, and he made a joke about, oh, it's Alanis Morissette's own beer, uh-huh. uh, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and I saw that, and I mean, for whatever reason, I thought about Baba Yaga, Um she wasn't somebody I had spent a lot of time thinking about. I always liked folk tales and magic and all that. Um, but she just got into my head. Um, and I thought, okay, this is a book that wants to be written. Good, good. So, yeah, so there's so much to unpack here with this uh, magical beings and uh, uh, paranormal experiences. Tell us a little bit about the book, uh, Divining Bones, and how that came out and how it came to be or little bit of the process so you talked a little bit about it but just going to a little bit more about the book oh sure um well the book is i was looking for a new project um after all the heat we could carry um so this thing happened with 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 baba and um i started writing some baba yaga poems um and i wrote maybe eight or nine and then i just laid them all out and read them thinking I'd do a whole book of Baba Yaga poems. And I'm like, mm, no, too much Baba. Um, so I said, it needs to be spread out. It needs to um, do some other, you know, it needs to work with some other pieces. Um, so I just thought about the themes um, that I saw emerging, you know, themes of um, magic and gender um, and sexuality. Um, and, this all connects to really what was going on in my life at the time. Um, I went through a pretty difficult period. Um, and I feel like, you know, Baba Yaga, for those who don't 
know anything about her. She is a witch, a crone figure in Russian mythology who lives in the forest in a house on chicken legs. Um, And she flies in a mortar and pestle instead of on a broom. And um, she eats children. Um, And I felt, but she can be a helper too. She can be a really important guide to you if you go in um, and you know the right things to say um, and you can perform an impossible task or three. Um, and I felt like, you know, going through a difficult period, Baba Yaga, you chewed me up, um, but in order to, to rebirth me, you know, so it was a significant to me in the, in those ways. Yeah. Good. Good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, (laughs) I just love the idea of, you know, in, in my meditative practice, I think it's like we both getting at similar things where I'll do this meditation with people where, um, we bring them into the banquet hall of their life. And we notice like where everyone is, it's everyone you've ever met. And then who's sitting at your table and realizing who's influencing you inside of, you know, your mind and your heart. And the idea of asking certain people to get up and leave that table Mm -hmm. and other people to come and sit down next to you at your table that will, that will influence you. And I, I always will have like um, a variety of mythical and spiritual individuals, but also then like Dorothy Parker is going to be there and Gertrude Stein's going to be there. And sometimes my cat would be there. Um, and I love the idea of I hadn't thought about it in regards to going into that world, but that one of some of those characters could come and sit at my table and that would be extraordinarily powerful for some of the stuff I'm about to go into. So thank you. Sure, sure. I, I was actually just about to ask you when you were talking about that. I was like, so are you talking about um, just real, you know, quote unquote, real people sitting at your table, people, you know, in your life? Are you talking about, you know, beings and so it's, yeah. yeah well it's it's funny i hadn't thought about more mythical and magical than that i've always for me it was it started for me with the people in my life but then also the people who i've read who influenced me so there would yeah. be these people that i i'd never personally met like dorothy parker but i have a very very personal relationship with her and then it started turning into pieces of artwork. So I would I would see like my Georgia O'Keeffe sitting there when I needed, mm. you know, that and, and my Matisse is sitting there and it's expanded. I've been practicing the the who's at your table meditation with my writers for probably five or six years. And now it's expanded to, you know, pretty much anything that you're like, this is an influence going into the situation I'm about to go into. You know, I want this to influence me. And I feel like that could be. That could be a book. That could be an object. Um, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good. So, tell us a little bit more about your poetry practice and uh, how uh, maybe how uh, gender uh, you t- in, in your bio. We talked a little bit about gender fluidity or uh, being male assigned, those kind of things. Let's jump. Can you unpack that a little bit to talk a little bit of how that informs your practice and how uh, that that kind of plays into itself into this uh, uh, book or? Yeah. Okay. Um, so. I mean, I was asking questions about gender a few years ago um, around the time that I that this book came out and when I was dealing with difficulty for a range of reasons. Um, I mean, I've since sort of come around to being like, yeah, I think I'm just a cisgender male. Um, but uh-huh. I've, I sort of decided that I'm a cisgender male who reserves the right to shapeshift. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is uh, has become my stance on it. Um that is, of course, you know, what gets manifested, I think, in the book, mm. um, you know, because you have, as it's as as I you know, as it says in the um, the introduction, a male assigned speaker who explores gender fluidity. Yeah. Um. So, 
gender, I mean, worked in the book, you know, and, and in a lot of my writing as a theme, it's not so much a process in what I'm writing, uh-huh. but were you asking me too about like writing process and more yeah, generally? Yeah, uh-huh. process, process, like how your exploration of this topic or this uh, part of you kind of like helped you or going back now, because now you're saying that uh, you kind of came full circle, would you say, or and what was that process like going through that journey? Oh, um, well, I just went through this period of, um, I mean, it sounds shallow, but I mean, doing things like wearing nail polish and makeup, um, and, but, you know, which I mean, sounds shallow, cisgender men can do that, of course, sure. You know, it's, that's not inherently what it's about, but doing things like, um, thinking of myself as being outside of the gender binary and it was it was valid it was legitimate it wasn't i don't want to give the impression that it was just a phase yeah you know, as people like to say but it got me thinking you know when i came back around to thinking oh i'm cisgender male um i thought well that doesn't mean that what i went through is invalid i think it just shows more than anything how fluid and mutable and perceptual gender can be mm. yeah and i i would just I just want to t- jump on that word shallow because I feel, you know, I I don't think it's shallow at all. You know, I can tell you that the first time I ever chose to wear underwear that was not technically made for a woman was, you know, t- might to some people think like, oh, whatever. But it was like an extraordinarily profound experience and was devastating and, and highly emotional. And anything like that is mm. where, I mean, if there's if there's a nervousness, if there's like a you know, a presence with you with interacting with that. It it's, I think it's very much the opposite of, of shallow. And I think it's something that everyone should engage with. That's yeah. a good, yeah, that's a good way of, <laughs> of looking at it. And I think that that describes my experience too. Yeah. And, and how is uh maybe being pagan or something, maybe the paganism kind of played into, cause I feel like nature and uh, returning to these kind of essential qualities, these essential elements Kind of feels like that's very informing this uh, this journey because uh, in my at least in my limited perspective, I think that you know nature is is not restricted by uh, these these uh, these strict definitions and, and dictionary areas, you know. Sure. And roles, yeah, yeah. Um, this whole idea of expansiveness, um, yeah. you know the <laughs> this you know kind of lie of the Enlightenment um, that we've internalized where, you know, everything's separate and there's such an emphasis on the individual and, um, you know, sort of like the apex of um, what we should aspire to are individual rights. Um, And this obsessive need to categorize, like I recently heard um, somebody talking about, uh, now I can't remember who it was, but somebody talking about how sexuality in the Victorian age, um, it's like it's a myth that sexuality was deeply repressed then it was more like there was an obsession with categorizing with mm. like saying we're going to you know label and name all these things that we're mm. that we're thinking about and yeah we're going to pathologize them and, and you know turn them into a sideshow but yeah, yeah it seems like the the uh the uh, idea that some people are uh free and some people are not free is like or sexually free sexually not free is like a part of that definition like oh this is this is the bounds of the game and then you know, these people are deviating from that, you know, game that we're, we're calling the bounds on, the boundaries on, you mm-hmm. know? 
to whoever that establishment is or whatever it is. But um, yeah, so like about paganism that I want to get into. Uh, so how did that evolve in you, or how did that inject, how did that uh, get itself into you? So um, I did the <laughs> I did the um, the thing you know, that a lot of weird kids were doing in the nineties in high school, you know, and that I was getting like into Wicca, you know, um, and doing so in a way that is, um, not having access to a lot of resources. You know, this was pre internet. Um, I mean, not pre internet, but pre everything's available on the internet. Yeah. It Um, was silly. The internet was so different. It's so different back then, right? <laughs> AOL and all that you're talking uh, about. Yeah. yeah. The dial up. Yeah. yeah. It was very different back then. So you could, you could basically say pre-internet because like now it's so much easier with the phones and all that. But uh, I don't know. So just like yeah. you know, passing around books with friends at school, yeah. you know, um, you know, the things you don't want your parents to find, you know, it's like a, you know, it, it's almost like smuggling porn or something. Yeah. Um, and Messing around, you know, just like messing around with spells, um, but being, you know, kind of reined in by um, just the context I find myself in at that time, you know, Catholicism and this fear that, you know, still these sort of like, because I'm in that environment, these fears of like going to hell for what I'm doing yeah, um, drove me away from it. That and, um, you know, I mean, everybody forms cliques and everybody forms um purity tests so you know you've got like the people who are like you know well we're the real witches you're not you know so (laughs) dealing with all that stuff (laughs) i mean the craft came out when i was in high school to give you an idea yeah (laughs) um but to to continue to your question about how i came back to it um when i was going through that difficult period i've alluded to um i started meditating um and clapping over there um and I just felt um, like energies around me when I was meditating. Yeah. You know, I felt um, I felt the force, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, okay, you know, this is really cool. I just feel like like I can manipulate this. And then that brought me back to what I've been doing in high school. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'm not um, 16 anymore. I'm, you know, I'm 34. Um, so let's try some of this stuff. For, you know, for real now that, you know, I don't have the same hangups and I went to it as a way as curiosity and exploration, but also as a way to um, seek out healing. So just to back up a little bit, like where were you born and where was, where were, where were you growing up? Like, where was the area you're growing up in? Like Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. Okay. That gives a little better idea of what kind of environment. And you went to, you went to public school, you went to Catholic school? Catholic school. Oh, Catholic school. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that gives a little bit more of a flavor of that uh i think former catholics make the best gay witches (laughs) and i would say that former mormons are a second runner-up to that yeah oh cheers to that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and then uh somehow this this in their journey i think uh you got into anarchism as well so we'll go into that and then we'll we'll read a poem or listen to a poem so we'll and we'll have the rest of the time but go ahead Talk a little bit about how anarchy plays into all this. And I think it all it fits in very well with this uh, uh, journey you're on, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, to all of a sudden, like, you know, just to kind of see the pieces coming together. Um, so, um, so, you know, growing up, um, I got the, you know, I, I was a good, you know, 
liberal in high school. Um, yeah. And I got the whole like, well, you won't be liberal forever. You know, wait till you in your first mm-hmm. paycheck, you, you know, that, that whole speech. And now nowadays I'm like, you're absolutely right. I'm no longer a liberal. I'm an anarchist. Yeah. Um, so, well, for me, um, anarchy um, or anarchism is about um, the radical freedom of the individual to do whatever they want to or need to do in order to have a fulfilling life Mm -hmm. Um, balanced against um, the responsibilities we all owe to our communities and to other people. Um, You know, there are all kinds of like, you know, you know, there's always hashtag, uh, not hashtags, uh, uh, dashes, you know, there's like anarcho this anarcho that, you know, I mean, I feel like the tradition I most closely ascribe to would be anarcho-communism because I'm so focused on, um, I think it's just a perfect balance of what I just said, the um, individual freedom. But at the same time, it's not like, you know, U.S. um, libertarianism where it's like, you know, I got mine, so screw you. It's about we also have these responsibilities to each other. I Mm. think that's one of the most surprising things that people who have never interacted with uh, the anarchist community or outside of like, I think what is publicized because as someone who, you know, grew up in a small town and really had no understanding and anarchy was just like this, you know, a white emblem on the back of a black sweatshirt Mm -hmm. and then kind of finding myself accidentally joining an anarchist community at some point in time um, where I found out in the middle of being um, a riot police situation where I literally was like, Oh, 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 this is what we're doing. I I didn't realize, but that the, one of the things I was most surprised at when things calmed down and I started interacting with was how the community, and I was like, I've never seen people take care of each other in Mm. such a profound way Mm. in such kindness where I'm talking like hundreds of people where anyone who needed food, anyone who needed a train ticket, like everyone was just so willing to and that was so new for me at the age of like you know 19 to see people who were so radically individual and yet were capable of taking care of each other and I do think that's something that I would like to highlight because I think most people don't have that interaction with that word and that association and if anyone's interested in that I would also be interested to know if there's any literature that you think is a good entry point for understanding there, my um, entry point, there is a massive um, digital tome called the Anarchist Fact, FAQ, um, which you can get, you know, in true anarchist, true anarchist fashion, you can get it for free um, online, download it as a PDF. In true capitalist fashion, you can also buy it on Amazon if you want, um, <laughs> you know, um, because capitalism is just, I've decided it's funny. You know, I, I, I need to say it's funny or else I'm yeah. just going to cry. Um, but that's a great place to start. I mean, it, it, it's enormous. I mean, you know, you're not going to sit and read it cover to cover, but it's a good thing to browse. Um, that's what I would, you know, suggest for a starting place. Um, I mean, beyond that, you know, I think it's good to listen. I mean, yeah, you know, you've got your theorists, you know, you've got your Proudhons, your uh, Kropotkins, um, your Bakunins, uh, Rosa Luxemburg. But um, it's a lot of reading, and I found it useful to listen to podcasts, um, to listen to uh, podcasts that are put out by Crime Think. Um, what's their podcast? The X Worker. I'm going to plug them. I really like them. Yeah. Cool, cool. So why don't we listen to a poem of yours? Uh, 
the couple of poems of yours, and then we can continue the conversation. Uh, tell us a little bit, set it up first, and then you can uh, read uh, a little bit. So I think um, the first poem I'll read, um, this seems to go pretty well with um, bringing together these different threads we've been talking about, about paganism and individuality, um, and also high school. Um, <laughs> I have a long poem that threads through the whole book called Witchcraft and Demonology that's broken up into sections. Um, so I'm just going to read the first section, um, which is, you know, these are all relatively short as individual pieces. So the first section, Witchcraft and Demonology. When I was 13, I read the Encyclopedia of Witchcraft and Demonology cover to cover. Some of the pages were glossy as wet skin, full-color photos of demons copulating with witches. Asmodeus, Baphomet, Legion, Malthus. Female bodies wrenched into postures that defied the dictates of bone. Many armed lovers with manifold teeth, beautiful as saints, but meteor. Hell seemed a place where horned lovers with a thousand cocks would treat my soul as if it were a body. But I promised my mother to be gay, not queer. No broomsticks, desecrated wafers, or dancing naked under the moon. Instead, monogamy and mortgage, friendship and four walls, the only magic, the Catholic kind, wine turned to blood on Sundays. By days, witches work as dental assistants, ordering the mouth's yellow-red chaos, picking dirty talk from the teeth, soothing gums scorched by spells, scraping the tongue which is tired from pronouncing the thousand Sumerian names for Satan. Thank you, thank you. Very nice. Snap, snap, snap. Yay, snap, snap. Thank you. Yes, snap. <laughs> the snap's coming back. <laughs> it is. I get snaps all the time in my, you know, at the end of each of my meditative writing class, we have a, we do a truce of truths and it always creates a poem at the end. And it's, I never start it, but they always are just like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's right. I got a friend, um, a colleague who does the snap, you know, after things. So um, I was just, so I just dig it. And he was just like, he's like, spread it, spread it. Do it, do it. So, so I, I've been, I've taken the, um, I've taken the charge and I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Uh, yeah. I, I was interesting in the poem, how you talked about like dual identities and the, uh, which also being a dental assistant, all this kind of thing that we have to continue to live in this, I guess the, the, picture is that we have to, you know, we're living in this society, but we're trying to subverting it at the same time, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going home and, and being ourselves, being our true selves. But what comes up for me at least is that, you know, it feels like um, these kind of societies, like anarchist societies and all that, and uh, anarchist communist societies can only exist if everyone has buy-in. You know, if you have, if you have some people who are not bought into it, then how do you deal with, or how do you navigate a society that's divisive? You know, they have people who are not fully bought into the, the philosophy, and then you have people who are so in a diverse society. It seems like, the, in my opinion, wouldn't it would crumble, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, the problem that we face um, is, you know, how do you construct a society? You know, well, I mean, the first thing I should say is that you know, 
anarchists, you know, anybody on the left, you know, who's thinking about it doesn't want us to all be wearing the same gray jumpsuit or anything like that. You know, um, the idea is not perfect consensus. You know, we know that that's um, impossible and undesirable. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, you know, anarchy, the idea of radical individuality, but, you know, responsibility to others. I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of different approaches to this. You know, I think about how I think kind of like a post-left anarchy tends to focus more on this idea that, okay, we're going to establish these, these communities and these enclaves that are going to do these things um, while existing, you know, within the larger structure because we don't have much choice. Um, You know, that can, that could potentially be like, you know, in a commune type of situation, but it doesn't have to be, it could also just be in terms of how you conduct your, your organization, you know, your, your meeting group um, and decide on your actions and so forth. But I mean, the broader question of like, how is this going to, how could something like this exist in a, on a broader scale? Um, I mean, I listened to a podcast recently where the guy was saying, um, you know, it's not like we're going to walk down to, to DC tomorrow and say, okay, you know, the government's gone and you know, the United States is, you know um, I mean, it, it needs to happen organically. I mean, things will happen that will cause people to become more and more disaffected. Um, with the current circumstances, um, could be natural disaster. I mean, could be economic crisis. Um, I think that if anarchists want to see a particular type of society, what we need to do is be out there, um, and doing good things for people and showing Mm. people, this is what the society we envision looks like, you know, consider this as a possibility. You know, we, we'd like to welcome you aboard And then, you know, when the spit hits the fan, um, maybe instead of going and saying, well, let's, well, we just had a Republican, so let's go vote for Democrats or, Mm. oh, we just had a Democrat, so let's go vote for the next Trump. You know, people will say, well, wait, no, there are other ways to, uh, to organize a society. I don't think a lot of this is not going to happen in our lifetimes. I recognize Mm. that, but I think it's laying foundations by, um, just modeling alternatives and trying to like the old Vietnam slogan goes, change hearts and minds. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. It seems like, uh, you know, as you're saying, the slow work and the idea that, you know, it seems to me the contradiction seems to be that, you know, creating society of radical individuals or people who are, you know, um, but then at the same time, they all have to be bought into this, this philosophy of like, you know, so it's kind of contradictory in terms of it's like an individual, but then they have to kind of, but I think ultimately what I think it uh, translates to me to mean is that forming other pathways for people in the herd to be able to free themselves up and be able to uh, find other alternatives, you know, right. so I just call it the either a or B a binary ch- trap, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I think that it's the only thing you, you would be buying into, I think would be the idea that you should be free to pursue what you want to pursue in life. Yeah. Plus have responsibility to other people, which to me seems, um, Pretty basic, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and not a lot to ask. I mean, we're, we're already kind of forced to buy into a set of um, values and practices that are bad for all of us, or almost all of us, for you know, 99, 99% of us. Yeah. Is, is there an example you could give for, for our listeners of perhaps like a very normal mundane activity or event that we have that 
how different it might be with a more anarchist approach to it mm. so that we can get this like wrap around our heads of like, oh, that's how it would affect in a daily life or like what's something we're very familiar with versus I think what a lot of people have in their head, which is like chaos yeah. and just like throwing things through windows. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just know that like, you know, what does dinner or what does voting or what does first day of school or what does, you know, what do these very mundane daily life things look like that would be different in a sort of tactile way? Um, well, first I just want to throw out the disclaimer that, you know, anarchism is such an amorphous political philosophy. And I mean, you know, um, I always joke that the, um, the worst thing about the left is, um, leftists, um, <laughs> the, the best and the worst thing, you know, um, you talked about chaos and I think that chaos, um, can be very productive and very creative. Um, it isn't always, but it can be, um, disagreement is important and useful. I mean, but you know, there's, there, I mean, every, every left, right, whatever. I mean, there's always infighting in different camps and not even necessarily a negative disagreement, but just lots of different ideas of how to do things. So I'm saying all that just because I, I want to say I'm, I'm giving you my perspective. I'm not giving you some kind of party line because there is yeah. no party. Yeah. Um, my own personal perspective is, I mean, even just observing, um, something as simple as meetings, um, how you arrange it in that you have people, you have facilitators, you know, that are leading the meeting, but it's an agenda that was anybody could have added anything to. Mm. Um, we've all agreed that this is going to be our agenda and the facilitator's job at the meeting is just to say, Hey, you know, we agreed we wanted to be out here in an hour, so we should probably move to the next point. You know, yeah. you know, are we cool with this? Let's go. But, you know, then that facilitator is not the facilitator every time. You know, yeah. we try to um, spread things, spread out power, you know, so that it, it to try not to let things clump or cohere around certain personalities. And I mean, I think realistically, um, certain people may just be more comfortable in certain roles. Certain people may be more comfortable getting up in front of people and, you know, managing a meeting or organizing a, an action. And, um, that's fine. I mean, you know, play, you know, people need to play to their strengths. Um, but you know, it's important that, you know, people need to be checking themselves and checking each other to make sure we're not getting to, you know, that you're not forming too much of a, uh, a hierarchy that could potentially be damaging. I mean, you know, so, so I mean, that's an example of like how something like a meeting might be run. Mm. We were talking a little bit about last episode about convenience and the and the the power and the uh, shackles of convenience in the last episode mm. and how uh, you know people I think in general the human tendency is just to you know like slacken into the path of least resistance and you know maybe it's just a question of upsetting the balance of uh, the initial uh, blockage, the initial barrier the, in order to break through that barrier. And then maybe it'll be much more easier, but it seems like you know it, it, the anarchist uh, philosophy asks a lot out of people to be able to, you know, get out there and, and go out of their comfort zone all the time and, you know, constantly be changing or shifting. Um, you know, I don't know. How, how do you, how do you think about that? What do you think about that? I mean, I think that, you know, yes, we're very used to convenience, um, particularly in this country. Um, and I'm not saying that you need to do things the hard way yeah. of just for the sake of 
political purity. Mm. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, we're in New York City. There's a Starbucks on every corner. If you want yeah. coffee, I think it's okay to go to a Starbucks, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> because that's just the reality. Yeah. Um, but I think there's also a recognition that we need to be um, thinking about the long game and the bigger picture and saying that, okay, you know, if we end up in a society where there's less convenience, what are we getting in exchange for that? Mm. If we give up convenience, it's like, well, I'd be happy to give up ready access to a Starbucks on every corner. If I didn't have, if, if we didn't have people who are working in those Starbucks, you know, and can't afford to, you know, pay their rent, you know, yeah. um, I would be happy to give up a Starbucks on every corner in exchange for being able to live in a society where I feel like I can do whatever I want to do within reason and have the support of my, my neighbors and my community and feel like I have meaningful relationships with them as a result of that. I think that's the, first of all, like, yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> big fan. Cause I have, I've, I've been in my neighborhood in Brooklyn for, for a very long time. And I really, I mean, I go to my coffee shop every, like I know those people, they know me, they've saved my mm -hmm. life and I've been depressed and like, I saw them this morning and, you know, but also I hadn't thought about it is that the idea of the price of convenience in this very physicalized form of like the physical convenience, but I didn't put it together until now of like, I talk about this a lot in writing and the idea that a lot of times my, my writers will come up and be like, but wouldn't it be easier to just do blank? You know, and especially yeah. in the screenwriting world, there's so many books that are just like this, da, 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 like write your script in 12 days. And this is the easy <laughs> hack. Yeah. And this uh, sort of Tim Ferriss scene, like let's hack our way into getting to something, which in some ways works really well. But, you know, I think for art, um, like the convenient path robs you of sort of the purpose of the creation and the like what you learn from the struggle and the growth that comes from overcoming the inconvenience is of far more value than getting to that end, you know, really quickly. And I just, you know, it's just something that I feel like as someone who started as a poet, which is most people who go into poetry, they know they're okay. They're like, yes, we're going to be in the trenches. We're going to feel it. We're going <laughs> to, we might work on a poem for 12 years. And then you move into the screenwriting world and everyone's like four weeks, four weeks, you should yeah. have 120 page ready to go. <laughs> and I really struggled with that. And I really just think that there's so much value in the, in, in going the long way around when it comes to art, mm -hmm. even if that art is a product that you end up selling. And it's, you know, and the richness, um, you know, you're talking about all the things you find. Um, I, I'm thinking about about richness, you know, the that derives from putting in the work into a work of art or into a community. Um, you know, like I to go back to you know my Starbucks example, I'm happy to, you know, give up Starbucks if it means that I have um I, I totally lost my train of thought there, but, um, yeah. this idea of, um, yeah, I mean, just if we could just, oh yeah, I know what I, where I know where I was going. Um, this idea that we already, our lives are already so inconvenient. Mm. We have the convenience of Starbucks. We have the convenience of our iPhones. We have the convenience of the internet, but I mean, our lives are scheduled around the clock and yeah. around work and around obligations that if you stopped and thought about it, a lot of them are obligations. Most of us probably wish we didn't have. Mm. Um, so my question is, is that truly convenient? And I think we could get into a big philosophical conversation about what's convenience and you know, and all that. I mean, yeah. we don't have time for that, but uh, you know, 
is is um the form of convenience we're living with really worth it? I mean, I think that it's um selling the birthright for a mess of pottage. Mm, yeah, yeah, it seems like uh, the cost of convenience and the cost of be- not being authentic, you know, being of being inauthentic, seems to be the real weight that it brings down. Uh, that we don't even realize, you, you know, people seem to, you know, take their suffering or whatever as being a matter of course. But the certain aspects of that suffering are things we could easily um, overcome if we would just give up the the so-called uh, pros of this, you know, it's false fruit, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like false, uh, false gold or whatever. You know, we're also anxious. You know, um, yeah, I'm anxious. My students are anxious, um, and it's like, well, no wonder. I mean, not only are we overworked and underslept, but um, there are so many expectations heaped on us, you know, and our value is defined by um, our accomplishments and what we, what we produce. And I'm really guilty of this myself. I mean, I've been thinking recently about, you know, I've, you know, I've got these books, I've got these, you know, um, these things I've done, you know, and um, I'm like, okay, that's all great, you know, but I'm just like, when I think about it, I'm like, wow. I mean, so many of these things I accomplished because I was like, if I don't accomplish these things, I feel worthless. Mm. Um, and it's like, well, I'm glad I accomplished those things, but is there any way that I can accomplish things without it being like, because the, um, the threat of like self-esteem collapses, like at my heels. Yeah. (laughs) No, I, I think that's, especially for writers. I think that is one of the, the heart, one of the biggest struggles with writer is, is that I am not, my product. And Mm. I have worked with a lot of writers where, you know, to get the product out, to get that external validation, they, they were inauthentic in some capacity. And I don't think that's true of your work at all, but I know people, no, 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 because I got your, I like, I'm I'm a big fan. Um, But I just feel like I, there's so many times and, you know, right beforehand you asked me about, you're like, you know, about my book that I I've written, but have not put out into the world and I think that was the big decision about why I didn't move forward with it because I was like, I think the impetus for this would be more about my ego and about like, I'm a published and I go and like yeah. have that versus me being like, is this really what I want to say right now? Do yeah. I actually think this is going to help the most amount of people? And when I really looked at it, I was like, no, like this was more about my ego and this is more about me going out, starting my own company and feeling the need to establish myself and prove something to the people who, you know, and I was like, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to make sure that the content is authentic to me. But I think it's so hard because there is still a part of my soul that's like, oh, who are you? You haven't, you know, you're not technically published in this format yet. You know, you have your plays, you have your your films, but yeah. You know, you don't have this book and, and there's this intimidation factor with people who have published that is, you know, it's hard. It's hard when you're an artist and you're like, you know what your soul is and you see your work. But then like the outside world can look at you and just think that it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And so it is this weird dance between, I think, ego and authenticity. Yeah, it seems to me also that the system is set up in a way that, you know, so many people are on the bottom. Some people are struggling. Some people are, are, are uh, starving. And then you have these these little goalposts where like, oh, you work so hard, you get this, jump through this hoop, you got you got this uh, promotion, you got this thing, and they give you little Easter eggs and all that, and they're like, that's the validation that keeps you supporting a system that your brethren are 
yes. are suffering and struggling through. He's like, well, I'm better than you. That's why I got this whatever uh, little little bit of crumb that was given out to us or whatever. And uh, um, and how that might relate to, I think you were talking a little bit about the best little boy in the world syndrome and how, <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're all giving those sense of external validations and how maybe you were struggling. Talk a little bit about that or tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, best little boy in the world. Um, now I can't remember the author's name, but, you know, um, we live in a convenient world. Google it. Um, yeah. He wrote a book um, in the 70s of, of that title. Um about as a gay man um, needing to feel like he always needed to succeed at everything um, and be, you know, academically on the top of his game, you know, um, clubs, you know, all that. And how it's like, if you feel like you don't have your internal sense of self-worth isn't there or isn't being reflected back to you in your childhood because, you know, you're different, um, you know, you go and you try to find external sources of self-worth. Um, and I mean, and, and I think that is very much my own story. Um, and part of my journey has been realizing that, um, you know, I do need to develop that internal sense um, that the external um I mean, I love all this, you know, I'm, I love being here on the show. You know, I yeah. love um, publishing and all that, but I'm like, I do need to develop that internal sense too. And I think that that's what we deal with. Well, that's what's what the best little boy is talking about. Yeah. yeah, I, I validate that a million times. I think there's so many people out there that feel like, oh, like, I mean, I've definitely felt like, oh, well, if I'm not teaching, because that's the one place I know I'm like, I know I'm a good teacher. I feel like I feel confidence in that. And I'm like, well, if I'm not teaching, it's not worth hanging out with me that like without, you know, this part of me that I am not a worthy person or I am not a good person. I think a lot of people who feel like, especially I think people in the queer community, we just feel like we're always trying to like make up for something because there is this feeling of like you know, just not being validated by the representations we see in our media, not really understanding that. But I think it's, you know, it's a really important thing to work on that, like, validation of self, because Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, until you truly, you know, love yourself, there's no change. There's no, I think, letting other people in. And I think it's one of the hardest things to do as, you know, especially artists where we are also, um, known to be a little bit of having brain differences, um, you know, and, and especially musicians, you know, writers are second only to musicians in statistically like depression. And, and so it's, it's a good practice of self-love. And I think just, yeah, the, uh, the so-called merit, you know, when we live in a society that alleges itself to be a meritocracy and is alleged itself to be, you know, giving, giving, benefits and, and opportunities to people who have, you know, proved themselves. It seems like, you know, just being alive, being human, we should be able to sustain ourselves. At the very least, we should be able to live a full life, rich life, because we're, we're valid. We're, you know, we don't need this, you know, um, sense of external validation that, oh, you've done this, therefore, you know, we, we should be humanists, you know, or like, you know, we should really be uh, in touch with the essential element of being alive and what can contribute to the society. Yeah. I think, I think after every time I teach 
really well or anytime I write something really good, there's yeah. a small part of me that still looks up and is like hoping my dad is there going, <laughs> I'm proud of you. And it's like, yeah. I was like, he doesn't see my teaching. He, I don't send him my writing, yeah. but there is there. And, I, and I'm, I feel like hopefully there's other people out there. Please let me know where yeah. it's like, you feel this internal sense of like, there is, you know, it always goes back to this feeling of like, am I the original people who I cared whether you know, that I wanted to to make proud. Like they're always with me. You know, my mom and my dad are always in the back of my heart and my mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. And there is this little part of me with everything I write and everything I do where I look up and I'm like, I hope they're proud of me. And I and I think that I don't know if again, like I would love to know from anyone if they feel that as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I think that you go ahead, Charlie. Oh yeah, no, I mean I I I mean I agree with that. Um, you know, I think we are all um, or I mean, well, everybody I know, <laughs> um, we are all seeking validation. Um, and that validation often does come out of a past, um, where we didn't get what we needed. Mm. And it may be because people, the people in our, in our past sucked and were awful. Um, or it may just be because they were limited and they didn't really know how to appreciate who we were because we were just so because we just weren't, they didn't know what to do with us, you know, (laughs) you know, and I mean, we've got, you know, imposter syndrome is definitely a thing, you know, especially for queer people, women, people of color, you know, anybody who's been marginalized in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've, I felt imposter syndrome, as a straight person. And I've also felt imposter syndrome as a queer person. It's like, I'm like, Jesus, Jess, like <laughs> it's like overtime over here. Um, <laughs> do we have time for another poem? Yeah. Why don't we read one more poem and then we'll start wrapping it up. Yeah. Okay. Um, why don't I read, um, one of the last poems in the book, which is one that I read pretty often, um, to close out readings. Um, you know, we need a Baba Yaga poem, of course. Um, so this poem um, is called Self-Portrait as Baba Yaga. Um, and it is also a New York poem because I love to get New York in my poetry when I can. Self-Portrait as Baba Yaga. Sundays, I go down to the Hungarian deli on the Lower East Side where I can get away with eating children if I'm sly about it slipping them into the goulash when no one's looking. Later, I cruise Coney Island in my mortar and pestle, but only the elderly Soviet emigres and granny fetishists pay attention. These days, I cast queer spells and burn myself at the stake for the crowds, offering nickel love potions to the lovelorn at 33rd and 7th. I have a tortoiseshell cat who catches mice and speaks Polish and a tortoiseshell comb that turns into a city when it's thrown on the ground. When out-of-town children ask my gender, I tell them I'm a witch. Thank you, thank you. Snap, snap, snap. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the microphone to pick it up, yeah. Thank you for the snaps. Thank you, thank you. All right. So, uh, yeah. So why don't we, uh, also, as we start to close out, why don't you tell people where they can hear you, uh, read or, uh, where they can follow you anything? 
So um, easiest thing to do is uh, I did set up a website, um, charliebondis.com, um, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-B-O-N-D-H-U-S.com. Um, I have my, my dates on there. Um, I have um, links to purchase my books. Um, I strongly um, urge you, if you're going to buy my books, to do so um, through the publisher, not through Amazon. Um, the uh, particularly Divining Bones, um, Sundress is just an awesome uh, publishing collective. It's a woman-owned and predominantly woman-operated and they're really focused on publishing work, you know, by women, by people of color, by queer people. And um, they just and, you know, they just do a lot of great work. Um, so shout out to them and, you know, buy my book and other books from them. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a few announcements uh, before we cut out. Um, uh, we have a uh, head ba- Healing Headbands fundraiser coming up. Laughter is the best medicine. So join Healing Headbands Project, the second annual Art Heals fundraiser on May 7th at 6.30 at LIU's Tile Center. And laughs create hot heal, back create heal. Indulge in delicious food and drinks, taking incredible performances by female rock band Antigone Rising, the Moving On Dancers, and by laugh, the humorous strategist Paul Ozenkopf. Proceeds, proceeds go directly towards supporting children in hospitals with serious illness. Get your tickets today at healingheadbands.com. Uh, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to um, our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Does it help support our mission? We invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Or you can go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power and sponsor this particular show. Uh, every cent you donate helps us continue to stay on air. Uh, so you just go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power and put the sponsor of the show or radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate and uh, sponsor Radio for Brooklyn. So please support community, independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of law. Again, this is radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, Jessica, do you have any last uh, thoughts or comments? Or Yes, I am very happy that if uh, all of my spring and summer workshops are now posted, so anything before September, if you go to meditativewriting.org, we've got the meditative writing, we've got the screenwriting, we've got my little neuroscience evolutionary biology attack of action and dialogue and screenplay structure. And if there's anyone out there who would like to validate that, like, Mommy, are you proud of me? If you could just slip into my DMs on Instagram, that would make me feel amazing. That's just um, at meditative underscore writing. Good, good. Thanks so much. And remember, you can look, you can follow us on uh, Facebook or, or uh, Instagram, uh, Truth to Power Show. You can look me up on Facebook, VGR Nathan Poet uh, on Facebook, um, and give us a like a page. And uh, we're out here every Monday at 8 a.m., and we rebroadcast right now at Thursdays at 9 a.m. And find out about our archives and on previous episodes at readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. So Charlie picked out Life on Mars by David Bowie for an end out song. Very nice, very nice. And uh, let's go out with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no Daddy has told her to go 
But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools And say As I ask you to vote 